And before we get into our text in Matthew chapter 20, it starts with, Matthew chapter 20 starts with the word for, meaning he's starting a new thought, but it's based on what's just happened, the, the encounter that's just taken place. And so before we get into our parable this morning, you have to understand a little bit about uh, the background here, a little bit of what's just taken place. At the end of Matthew chapter 19, you have the story of Jesus and his encounter with, Scripture just tells us, a rich young ruler. And this is an encounter where this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he wants to know what he needs to do to be saved. He wants to know how he can turn his life around and answer Christ's call and begin to follow Christ. And Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter with this man and he says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the man turns around, saddened, because he can't do that. He's not willing to take that step. And he leaves. And Jesus isn't saying here that money's bad. Jesus isn't saying that uh, if you are wealthy, that that's a terrible thing and you need to get rid of everything. Jesus just went right to the heart of this guy's idol. What this man had put ahead of everything else in his life was wealth, was money. And Jesus goes right to the heart of that. And this man was not willing to give that up. This man was not willing to make a sacrifice to follow Christ for the kingdom. And Peter asked this question. As they've seen this happen now, and they've seen that this man won't sacrifice, and so he's sent away, Peter begins a conversation with the disciples about the sacrifices that they've made. The fact that these are the men that have given up everything. And this is what he asks. Peter says, we have left everything to follow you, Matthew 19, 27. What then will there be for us? Peter reveals a little bit of his motives and probably the motives of the rest of the disciples still even at this point. Even as they've grown with Christ, even as they've seen everything that Jesus has done, there is still a sense where they're in it for what they're going to get. They're in it for uh, the esteem that they believe is going to be theirs by following Jesus, by being a part of this, this new kingdom. And Peter really here sounds like a little kid. Well, we've done all the right things. What are you going to give us? You know, and again, those that have little kids, you know exactly what this is. You, you walk into a room and, and your kid's behavior changes immediately and they begin to get along. Where you just heard them from the other room, they were screaming at each other. All of a sudden, they're getting along, and maybe they give them, you know, a sappy hug, and, it's, and then they both look up at you, both, because I'm talking about my two little ones, sorry. This guy personal there. They both look up at you, and they, you know, they want something. They, they expect to be rewarded for behavior that they ought to show all the time. I remember as a kid uh, in elementary school in Copley, Ohio, they came up with this program where if you were caught being good, whatever that looked like, if you were caught being good, you got this thing called a, a POPs pass. And I know POPS stood for something, but I have no clue what it stood for. I probably couldn't have told you back then either. But you got a POPs pass. And at the end of the month, every student who had gotten a POPs pass got to go to a special assembly where there was food and there were games. And they put all these POPs passes with your names on it and they draw out prizes, some pretty cool things that you could win. So for a little kid, this was the coolest thing in the world. And I remember plotting how I could get one of these. Not just, well, I think I'll just be good because I should be good, but plotting. I would hold the door when we'd all come in from recess. 
I would answer every question that I possibly could answer in class. I'd raise my hand for everything, even if I didn't have a clue of what the answer might be. And it got, it got bad. The closer we got to that assembly, I had a buddy named Mike. And I actually had him accidentally knock the books off the girl's desk in front of me so I could get up and I could pick the books up and put them back on her desk. And I still didn't get one. I think my teachers could see that uh, I was not interested in being good for goodness sake. But that's what we see here, I think, with Peter a little bit. My motivation back then was I was being good with my eye on the reward. I was being good not because I wanted to be nice to someone else. I was being good because I wanted what I could get out of it. And you see that with Peter's question. Well, God, I understand why you would send that man away. I understand why you would say maybe there's nothing for him, no reward for him. But us, we've sacrificed everything. We've left jobs and we've left family. We've left everything in order to follow you. What's in it for us? And if you read the beginning of this, it starts to set up like some other stories of Peter, where Peter will ask something that kind of reveals his heart or reveals his ignorance to a degree, and Jesus will immediately correct him. Jesus will immediately uh, rebuke him, or, or Jesus will set him straight. Look, here's what you're thinking. Here's where your heart's at, but let me tell you the reality. But he doesn't do that here. In fact, he says to Peter, look, you're going to be rewarded. He tells Peter that the disciples are going to sit on thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. They are going to be esteemed and they are going to be rewarded. And I think if he had stopped there, Peter would have been pretty happy. But he keeps going. And he says, look, it's not just you guys, the ones that have left everything for me. He says, no, Anyone who has sacrificed for the kingdom, really anyone who has responded to the call to follow Christ is going to be rewarded. In fact, some of the least likely people that you see, some of the last, some of the forgotten, some of the cast aside, some of the ones that society says deserve nothing, some of those least and last will be most and first in God's kingdom. And then he tells the story that we're going to look at today. Again, Matthew chapter 20. I'm going to read the first seven verses to begin. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, all right, I think, yeah, the version I have on my computer and the version I have on my Bible, I, I could not find this version online and the online and any of the Bibles I have. So mine says the third hour, but you'll have basically it corresponds into what we would think of. It's nine o'clock. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, so I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, What have you been or why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one hired us, he can't, they answered. He said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. So as we start this parable, as we start the story, it's important to know who the players are. 
A parable is something, again, with a parallel meaning. Each of these people, each of these uh, characters, the players in this story represent something. And what we have laid out for us would have been a typical work situation in Israel. If you were unskilled labor, if you didn't have a specialty, something that you were really good at, you would go out into the marketplace, and this was like the early temp, temp agencies. You would go in the marketplace, and basically there was a place where you could stand, where you would wait for someone to come along and say, hey, I have, I have this job, or I have that job. Please come and help me for the day. And most of it was quick jobs, maybe a day, maybe two days. Um, but these were kind of the, the low men on the working totem pole. And so their money never would have been guaranteed. They would have been scratching and clawing for anything that they could possibly get. We had a place like this. Uh, I remember when I worked in Nyack, and I'm sure some of the bigger cities have places like this still today, but I worked for a roofer for a summer in Nyack, and I can remember times where we had a big job and we had a deadline pulling up to this place, and there was 20, 30 people, and if we needed six, we'd get out and point at six guys and they'd jump in the back of the truck and, and away we would go. And they would be basically contracted to work for that day and paid that day. The first group of workers the owner calls to work, they agree to work for a denarius. Now, this is important really only in that a denarius would have been far more than they normally would have made for a day. A denarius in that day would have been the, the wage of a Roman soldier. And so again, if these are the low men on the working totem pole, the Roman soldiers would have been uh, more above middle, upper middle class maybe of what we have today. And so they're going to make what a Roman soldier is going to make for one day. That is a lot of money. And they would have jumped at the opportunity. They would have been thrilled with the opportunity to give an honest day's labor to work one day and to make that kind of money. And then we're told that the owner repeats the process several times. The Jewish workday would have begun at, at 6 a.m. That would be the first hour. And so the third, sixth, ninth, nine, twelve, three p.m. And the last group that he hires, we're told he hires in the 11th hour. So, so if the end of the workday is 6 p.m., he hires a new group to come in and to begin work at 5 p.m., just one hour before quitting time. This group probably would have given up any hope of being hired as they're still sitting around the marketplace. But the owner comes, and the owner invites them to go work in the field. And it's interesting, because he doesn't work out a pay rate with any of the other groups. Just that first group. That first one that he hires to start work at 6 a.m., he says, this is what I will pay you. And then the others, he just says, I'll pay you what's fair, basically. So these are the players that we have in the story. This is what each one represents as we move forward. The landowner is God. All right? In this story, the landowner is God the Father. The workers are those who he calls and responds to the call, which would be Christians. All right? These are people that later on, as you get into the New Testament, and it becomes clear when Christ dies and is resurrected again, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, those are the workers in the field. The field is the world that God has prepared, and that work is working for the kingdom. That work is the unique call that God has on each and every one of our lives. That work is what Ephesians 2.10 talks about when it says those good works that God has prepared in advance for each of us to do. The denarius, that wage, in this story would represent God's grace to us, would represent salvation, would represent 
heaven. So that's the basics of the parable to this point. These are the players, all right? Now the stage is set, and now it gets a little bit interesting. Because immediately we see a problem. This is where I think the passage gets rough for some people. And this is why, honestly, I haven't heard a lot of pastors preach on this. Because I think this is an affront to our basic sense of fairness. Our basic sense of the ways that things should be. And for a lot of Christians, we would never admit it, but there's some things in this parable that push some buttons for us, I think. All of us are born with this sense of, of what's fair and what's not fair. Uh, again, I'm so grateful that, that God gave us those second two kids because it's given me a whole new uh, litany of illustrations that I can use. But if you don't think you're born with a sense of fairness, go on a road trip with two little kids in the back seat. How many times will you hear things like, Mom, William got two more fish crackers than I got? Or, Dad, Liv has two books. I don't have any. It's not fair. Even at home, like sometimes I'll empty my pocket change and I'll just divide it between the two kids. And if it's not spot on equal, one of those kids is going to throw a fit. Even though they're getting something they didn't have before, something that wasn't theirs, it's still not fair. Now they're getting a little older, so it's not as big a deal. But back when they were both younger, I could give Olivia four dimes and then give Will three quarters. And Will would throw a fit because she got one more coin. Even though he has more money, she got one more coin than he did. It's just not fair. And again, I think all of us are born with that sense. And for a lot of people, that carries over into our relationship with God. We expect God to be exactly the same with everybody. And we expect God to treat us according to the things that we do or to treat us according to how long we've been a Christian. And what we see in this passage, what we see in this story, is that God ultimately does treat us all the same. He treats us all with grace that's completely and totally undeserved. And that's going to look different in each and every situation. But we can find ourselves sometimes kind of, if you, if you translate to the work world today, we can catch ourselves comparing paychecks. Have you ever worked with someone that you knew did either the same amount of work as you did or even less work than you did, but you know they got paid more than you did? That's a tough situation. I was on the opposite side of that. One of the first jobs that I took when I moved back to Syracuse after seminary the first time didn't work out. We moved back to Syracuse. We got a child on the way. We don't really know what we're going to do. And uh, with my degree, my degree was good to sell things, and that's it. And so I was a salesman. Well, sell things or be a preacher. Those are my options. Uh, I wasn't in ministry yet, and so I went and I looked for a sales job. And I've told you before, I've sold all sorts of things. Um, I've sold Cutco knives. I've sold generators. I moved from selling generators, which looked good actually on a resume, because I've told you before too, I did it during Y2K when everybody was freaking out that the world was going to end. And so I sold these generators, and I mean, it was easy, even though I knew nothing about generators at all. But on a resume, that looked really good because I sold a lot of them. And I moved from that into selling cell phones for this new cell phone company. And this was way back in the early days of cell phones. And they liked my experience. 
they, they like the fact that I've sold several different things. And so they hired me on full time with benefits for this company. And as I began to work, I began to notice that people were treating me differently. I, I'm a fairly friendly guy. I, I feel like I make friends somewhat easily. Um, none of these people would talk to me. It was very obvious that they were upset with me. They were angry at me. And as it turns out, this company had only hired temps up to that point. And so each of these people that I was working with, that we were doing the exact same thing, that honestly most of them were selling more than I was selling, all of them were temps with no benefits and a a starting wage that was much less than what I was making. And for them to move from temp to permanent, they had to meet quota for three months. The problem is, our product was horrible. <laughs> our product was terrible, and our stores were in places no one went, ever. And so no one, I never came close to quota any of the months that I was there, and no, nobody else did either. And so they knew they're in a situation they're never going to be on permanent. The entire time I was there, I was the only one that entire time that was permanent. But I was doing the same, or even a little bit less than they were doing. I'd been there a lot less had less invested in the company, had shown less loyalty than the rest of them were, and yet I was being paid more than everyone else there. And you can understand, they were a little upset. Even my charming personality couldn't overcome that. But each of them had a sense of what was right and fair, and on the surface, obviously, that didn't qualify as fair. You see the same thing happening here. Listen as we get into the rest of the story. Beginning with verse, or picking back up in verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Now, the original listeners to this, those that were gathered around and listening as Jesus taught, this would have stuck out immediately. Because in those days, if you hired day laborers, the first ones hired were the first ones called in and the first ones paid so that they could go and they could get on with the rest of their day. So the fact that he says, call the last ones in first is huge because those that were hired first are now watching as those that were hired after them are receiving their wages. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. Now, they didn't have a problem with what they signed up for. They didn't have a problem with the fact that they were going to work a day's labor for a day's pay. But as they watched everyone else get paid, now all of a sudden, well, now they've got an issue. Now they don't like the fact that they're only making the same amount as that person that only worked for one hour. They'd been in those fields for 12 hours. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, but you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day or the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Now, most of us, I would think, can relate to those workers that were hired first. 
We read that they were upset about it, and we go, well, of course they were upset about it. That's not right. The temperature would have been well over 100 degrees. They're out there in the vineyard. They're working 12 hours, and they have to watch as someone who just got hired an hour before quitting time gets paid the exact same amount. These men worked a fraction of the time. And they were being paid the same. And then, again, just kind of as an extra bonus, the owner did it completely backwards and paid those men first. So not only did they were they out there the least amount of time, they got their money first, they got to go home first, and those who had worked the whole day had to watch the entire thing take place. It didn't matter at that point what they had agree, agreed on. It didn't matter the fact that they had agreed to take that wage. They were thinking only in terms of fairness. Now remember, a denarius was far more than they deserved. A denarius was far more than they would have earned any place else. But their mind immediately goes to fairness. And if you think of that wage as eternity, you think of that wage as heaven, I think sometimes that we forget that heaven is far more, heaven is far greater than any of us deserve. And we can tend to look at it, and we can tend to do the same thing when it comes to the kingdom of heaven that these men did with their wages. We look at certain people and we go, it's just not fair that that person's going to go to heaven. Or we might be okay with the whole thing if somehow there was like a lesser heaven, like a heaven light. Like that person can go there, that's fine. As long as I get, you know, I get the real heaven, I get the full deal. Because in our minds, somehow we convince ourselves that we deserve that free gift of salvation that God gives to us. And other people that don't have the same story as us. Other people that haven't been Christians as long as we have. Other people that haven't gone through the same things and yet still stayed faithful and still stayed loyal. Those people don't deserve the same reward. But the owner says, isn't it my right to give what I want to give to who I want to give it? And what they call unfair, he calls generosity. Where he calls grace. And so the problem in this parable is that in our sense of fairness, that sense of fairness I think that all of us have, it tells us that those who work harder and longer deserve more. And I really, I think that's what Peter was getting at when he brought this up to Jesus in the first place. We're the ones who have made the most sacrifice. We're the ones that have put in the most work. We're the ones who have given up the most. Certainly, we deserve more than anyone else. But the problem is it's not fair. It's grace. And grace is never going to make complete and total sense to us. Grace goes against some of the basic ways that we're wired with a black and white sense of right and wrong and fairness. But in God's grace, with God's generosity, the pay is the same. Whether you came to Christ as a five-year-old in your parents' home, or you came to Christ with your last breath, the reward's the same. The pay is the same. The grace is the same. I want to look at a few different principles that we see in this story as well. The first one, I think you can miss, um, just quickly we'll hit on it though, but it's God himself that calls the workers. And again, these are things that would have stood out to the original listeners. 
because they knew the way that things worked in that day. But this, this landowner had a foreman. In that day, you sent the foreman out. The landowner didn't go out and get the workers. The foreman was responsible for all of that. Uh, but this says the, the owner himself went out and not only got that first batch of workers and got them going, but he went out at each of the different times where more workers were needed. He went out. He picked the workers. He called the workers to his fields. Jesus has taken the opportunity here to give us a glimpse of the heart of God, to give us a glimpse of the loving God that we serve. This God, that though he owns it all, though he has uh, angels at his disposal, though he has uh, means of drawing people and means of calling people, he chooses to do it himself. He chooses to seek us out himself. He chooses to go out and call us to him. He meets us where we are seeks out a relationship, calls us into a relationship, and then equips us and sends us out into the fields to serve. In fact, Scripture says, without this fact about God, without this fact that God is the one that goes out and calls, none of us could be saved. Jesus says in John 6, 44, no one can come to the Father, or no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And so in this parable, you see one of the roles of God the Father. One of the roles of God the Father is to call. He pursues us. God is not indifferent. God is not distant and unknowable. He pursues us and he draws us into a relationship with him, draws us into his presence, guarantees us a wage and a reward to each that accept his call. The second principle that we see in this parable is the call's the same, but the timing's different. There wasn't a different call at each hour that he went out. The call was the same for each and every worker. Go work in the fields. Go work in the vineyards. Go work uh, until the day is done, until the job is done. That call remains constant for each and every believer. All of us are called to go into the harvest fields. All of us are called to go and to do the work that God has for us to do in his kingdom. What's different is the timing. When people respond to that call. There are some that will never respond. There are some that would never find themselves in the marketplace in the first place. They would never find themselves even seeking that kind of work. There are those that will never respond to God drawing them to himself. There are those, like I said, which is probably a lot of you in here, that responded at a very early age. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home. You grew up going to church. You grew up going to Sunday school and then the church service and then Wednesday night and then Sunday night. You were there every time the doors were open. You gave your heart to Christ at a young age. You responded to that call. And maybe you haven't been really working in the fields all the time. You've allowed some distractions to come up here and there. But for the most part, you accepted that call. And you've been working at it. And you've been growing in your relationship with God for a long time. Others may hear it for years and decide they don't want to work, only to change their hearts later and follow God. And then there are those that cry out in that final hour, in that last hour. And they cry out. And their call is the same. Their call is, is to do what they can with what God's given them in the time that they have left. I've had the privilege of praying with a couple people on their deathbed. 
and seeing literally their life saved right there in that moment. I prayed with a man in my first ministry in New York about two hours before he passed away. And I had a long talk with his sister. He had been a miserable man. A miserable man. And his sister, rather than being excited, because no matter how old you get, apparently, sibling rivalries just keep going on and on and on and on. Instead of being excited that her brother had just given his heart to God and that she would be reunited with him once again in heaven someday, was upset because he got to live his life however he wanted to and he was going to get to go to the same heaven that she was and she'd been a Christian since she was a little kid. The call's the same. The timing of the response is different. This parable tells us that the call on each of us is no different. The only difference is when we respond. And the beautiful thing is God can use any of our lives, no matter what time that response comes. That man that prayed to receive Christ on his deathbed, we saw several people come into a relationship with Jesus Christ at his funeral because they knew what a miserable man he was. And yet even in those, just those couple hours, they could see the change. They could see uh, the peace. They could see that something very real had happened to him in those few moments. God can use the testimony of those that have gone through terrible circumstances. Those of you that were saved at a young age like I am, I'm sure that I'm not alone in this. There were times where I would hear people giving their testimonies. I remember Teen Challenge coming to our church and these guys getting up and it was about drugs and they were doing this and they were doing that and God saved them from all that and God changed them. And I remember as a little kid sitting there thinking, man, I wish I had that testimony. The beautiful thing is God can use my testimony a little four- or five-year-old kid that gives his heart to Jesus just as much as he can use the testimony of someone who lived for their own enjoyment, their own pleasure for most of their life before they came into a relationship with God. And he can use the one that, like I said, has a deathbed confession and a deathbed conversion. God can use each and every one. That timing of the response is going to be different for each of us, but it doesn't change the fact that what God has said will be yours, will be yours. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And as, we, as we've already talked about a little bit, the wage is equal. That's the last principle that we see here. The wage is equal. Every worker received a full day's wage. I had to go back to Massachusetts again this, this last week. Um, I put a lot of miles on the car this summer. I did a funeral for uh, one of my closest friends. Uh, he was in his, I believe he was only in his late 50s, but he had lived a hard life. Uh, he grew up very, very wealthy. Uh, his father owned a large uh, portion of the town of Foxborough, owned car dealerships, owned all sorts of stuff. He'd grown up very, very wealthy, very privileged, and uh, he, he knew how to party, and he knew how to party hard. And uh, for years, he was addicted to all sorts of different things, uh, drank, smoked. Uh, and at these last few years of his life, he's had lung cancer, emphysema, a thing called alpha-1, which is a lung disease, and COPD, and just all sorts of things that have been wrong with him. Um, he's been in the hospital more often than he's been out of the hospital these last few years. He gave his life to Christ about five years ago. The change in that man was drastic. 
and complete. He was no longer the guy that he used to be. And I'll tell you, you want to talk about an easy funeral to do? Because he preached the sermon. There wasn't much I had to do. But I had the privilege of, of being in a room full of people that I knew were lost. I knew didn't have any kind of relationship with God. And basically pointing out, look, what could have changed this man? What could have changed his heart? What could have turned him from that guy that you knew? The guy that burned bridges, the guys that burned through marriages, that ruined relationships with his kids, to this man now, who was a great grandfather. Not great grandfather. He was a good, like great, good, that kind of, okay? Good grandfather, just one level. Had a great relationship with his children now. Was, was generous, was kind, was all the things that he, they never would have described him before. Now he was those things. Only a relationship with God could have done that. Only the life-saving power of Jesus Christ could have done that. But you know the reality? That man lived however he wanted to live for a long time. He came to faith in pretty much the 11th hour, the last few years of his life. You know he's going to be in the same heaven that you and I are going to be in? The wage is the same. doesn't matter if you were hired at 6 a.m. or you were hired at 5 p.m. The wage is the same because of the grace of God. And so the point, the point of the story, the, the temptation with parables can be to overanalyze every detail, to try to find hidden meaning where I don't think there was any intended. I've read some of the most interesting commentaries on parables where guys are just reaching for any little thing they can possibly find. I think this one is pretty straightforward and pretty simple. The parable was to teach one thing to the disciples. They would absolutely be rewarded for their service with grace. But because of what Jesus had come to do, and because God loves each of us, he would extend that same grace, that same reward to all who call on his name, regardless of length of service, regardless of kingdom accomplishments. Like that old hymn says, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Thank God in his kingdom, it's not about fairness. It's about grace. And I think we need to concentrate more on that beautiful grace that's been given to us. Stop worrying about other people if they're doing what we think their kingdom job is. Stop worrying about what we think their relationship with God looks like. Do what God has put in front of us. And trust that God in his grace, trust that God in his generosity is going to work out all the details in the end. That's not up to us, and it's not something that we need to worry about. And I think we need to stop, ourse stop and ask ourselves the question every once in a while. Are we being paid what we're worth? <laughs> because the answer is an absolute resounding no. The gift of God is far more than we're worth, and it's far more than any of us deserve. And when we're tempted to think that that person hasn't done enough, or we're tempted to think that that person hasn't been saved enough, 
we need to be reminded that it's only by the grace of God that we have a relationship with him. And it's only by the love of God and the grace of God that we have an eternity in heaven to look forward to as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for these great stories in the Gospels. We thank you for the way that you chose to teach. Taking things that in that day and age especially would have made such complete and total sense to those that were hearing and yet using it to deliver a deep and powerful eternal message. Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for that grace that extends to each and every one that responds to your call. Each and every one that you send into the fields. Each and every one that you send towards the harvest. Each and every one that responds. We all receive that same grace. We all receive that same wage. We all are paid far more than we ever could deserve or earn on our own. We thank you for that gift of heaven. I pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts that rejoice with those that accept that gift. Not looking at those details, not looking at those things that we might think are not fair, but rejoicing in the fact that your grace extends to us and extends to others. And Lord, I pray again in this place that we would see a harvest of people that respond to that call. In Jesus' name.